This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Seemingly out of nowhere, people have started viewing me as some kind of like generationally definitive writer, um, which gives me the single worst case of imposter syndrome I've ever had, and also makes me feel like the luckiest person in the whole world. Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And it is a gorgeous spring day here in the ICYMI verse. The sun is shining, the flowers, they're blooming. The birds are chirping, and both Allegra and Flones are making fortunes off of me because I can't breathe through my nose right now. I love it. (laughs) Something else I love is today's episode, which is an interview with one of my favorite cultural critics and internet essayist. Her name is Rain Fisher Kwan. For those of y'all who are unfamiliar with her, I just have to say that you are in for a real treat. If you are familiar with her, you're also in for a real treat. I think the easiest way to introduce Rain is to go back to a bleak point in our collective timeline. There are a lot but the one I'm talking about is West Elm Caleb. We did an episode on the West Elm Caleb story back in January of 2022, but the short version of this story is multiple women on TikTok came to realize through the power of the algorithm that they had all dated the same man, a West Elm furniture designer named Caleb. A whole litany of shitty dating behavior was attributed to him, love bombing, ghosting, sleeping with multiple women in the same day. Fascinatingly enough, the thing that was the most egregious, which was allegedly sending non-consensual nudes, was the thing that was least talked about. But I'm not here to relitigate that. The reason that this is important for today's episode is best summed up by a Vanity Fair article about Rain. Quote, when West Elm Caleb metastasized from a TikTok inside joke into an online urban legend, denizens of a certain corner of the platform turned to one voice in particular for the definitive take on the latest contentious internet main character. Rain Fisher Kwan, a 20-year-old Vancouver-based culture writer known across TikTok for her persona as Et Rain Corp and internet princess at large. And those denizens turned to Rain for good reason. Her take, as her employees expected, was one of the most nuanced and compassionate towards everyone involved. She wrote of the West Elm Caleb affair, quote, The fact that hordes of women gleefully ate up tongue-in-cheek Caleb-branded ad campaigns made it clear to me that any justifications of a high-minded feminist morale were purely aesthetic. Either you admit that you're cool with companies making money off of an abuse scandal— 
or you admit that the anti-Caleb campaign was never really about abuse at all. In the years that Rain has been active online, she has amassed a loyal and devoted following on multiple platforms. She has over 250,000 followers on TikTok, 66,000 on Twitter, and over 50,000 on Instagram. She's been interviewed by Dazed, Vanity Fair, and Vox. Her Substack Internet Princess counts among its thousands of subscribers celebrities like model Emily Ratajkowski, who cited one of Rain's essays on her podcast. I'm going to play a clip from Rain Fisher Kwan, the internet princess. One of her TikToks popped up on my feed of her reading from this substack. She has a really great substack. I highly recommend it. I am now a subscriber. And today, Rain graciously agreed to join me for our third installment of Internet Diaries, a series that is honestly just a excuse for me to talk to some of the coolest and smartest people on the internet. I really hope y'all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Just a heads up. There are some minor audio issues during this recording because I honestly got too excited and started talking with my hands. So apologies if you hear more background noise than usual. I will work on containing my enthusiasm going forward. But without further ado, after a short break, I will be back with Rain. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. And I'm back with Toronto-based culture writer and critic, TikTok creator, and one of my personal favorite internet essayists, Rain Fisher-Kwan. Rain, hello. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Such a nice intro. (laughs) How are you? How's it going? (laughs) It's going good. Um, I am so excited this is happening. I have been dropping your tweets in our planning Slack channel for a while, and I'm just like, she's so smart. Like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you so much. I always like, I don't know if you have this, but sometimes when somebody like mentions my own tweets to me, I'm like, wait, you can see those? Like the Mm -hmm. other people. (laughs) I I always kind of like to imagine that I'm like putting them out into the void. So sometimes it's kind of like a a shock Mm -hmm. when I'm reminded that they do. It kind of exists out there. (laughs) I honestly feel similarly about this podcast because as you can (laughs) see, I'm usually just talking to one other person. So it kind of surprises me when other people are like, I heard you say this on the show. And I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's not just for me. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, sometimes I'll be like talking to one of my friends about something and they'll be like, oh yeah, I read that in one of your essays. And I was like, why did you read that? Like, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> that's why private. are you doing this? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's just for me and thousands of strangers who will never mention it to me. Yeah, so exactly. Well, I'm glad that we're on the same page uh, as we head into this. So one of the first questions I usually ask all my guests is what their very first internet memory is. And I'm really excited to hear yours. That's a really good question. Um, So I'm 21. So I like have the, I feel like kind of the interesting experience of like, I feel like I kind of grew up with the internet, like social platforms on the internet kind of like became a thing around the time that like I was born. And I feel like they kind of came into maturity with me. So my very first memories of the internet were like the very beginnings of Tumblr, like kind of the start of like sort of image-based memes. (laughs) I was a very like um, anxious child just in general. And I was like really concerned about like doing things that were wrong. To be honest, I've kind of from a young age felt like the internet was like full of sin. And uh, I was really scared about like seeing things that were inappropriate on the internet. So I used to, um, for literally years, probably starting when I was like nine or something, the only way that I consumed like content on the internet was that I would go on Pinterest and search up funny. And uh, <laughs> and then I would look at like, there. usually it was like nursing memes. Like I, I think mm-hmm. there was like a big community of nurses uh, on Pinterest. So usually I just consumed uh, nursing memes. Then I started an Instagram account for my pet rats. But that was honestly a pretty heavy hitter in the rat community when I was <laughs> in seventh grade. Please tell me more about this Instagram account for your pet rats. Well, I feel like just in general, communities that are really interesting on the internet are usually like communities that exist out of like necessity in some way or communities Mm -hmm. that feel like judged by the people in their like real life. Like I think the rat owning community really thrived on the internet because like there was a common theme of persecution. Like everybody was always Mm -hmm. talking about how like everyone thought it was disgusting that we owned rats. And I feel like when that's the case, people really like flock to internet community because you find people for the first time who like love the same things as you and are like kind of weird in the same ways that you are. So um, I remember when I was in middle school, I was like really, this is going to shock you. I was really not cool. Um, (laughs) Didn't, (laughs) uh, wasn't really kind of at the top of the social pyramid at the time. But my rat account quickly gained over 100 followers, which when I was in the seventh grade was a really big deal. And I do remember that when people at my middle school found out about it, they were very shocked and confused and and I would say maybe even a little jealous. So (laughs) I feel like I also maybe got that like dopamine rush of feeling like feeling accepted and also feeling like I'd gained some kind of social power through the Internet, which maybe... uh, made it attractive to me in the long run. That really kind of makes a lot of sense, I think, as a first experience. What you were saying about some of the most dedicated communities online kind of being based in a sense of persecution reminds me of a lot of fandom and the roots Mm -hmm. of that and how strong that feels for a lot of people, even as fandom, I think, almost becomes the dominant mode that people have started engaging with culture. There still remains that feeling of being the loser in the room, even as yeah. like superheroes are the thing that we're all forced to watch. I think about that too, because I definitely was also really into fandom spaces when I was 
young when I was in middle school around that age and what's really interesting you know like I was on Tumblr I was into like Doctor Who and like and uh Sherlock stuff like that and what's really interesting is that honestly I don't think I really had like an earnest love of like either of those shows really like I I almost like found the community first and became Mm -hmm. interested in the community and then started consuming the content because I like had a sense that these were people like me who like felt like they didn't fit in and felt like they liked different things than other people. And I think often the content almost becomes like secondary. I have like noticed before how there's still this like culture of Mm -hmm. persecution amongst like 35 year old white male Marvel fans Mm -hmm. um, who still think that they're like freaks for consuming like the number one most popular mega franchise in human history it's definitely really interesting to watch it unfold the concept of tripping kind of backwards into fandom is really really interesting to me starting from a place of this community looks cool and i'm going to get involved in it based on that versus an earnest love of like doctor who which was a fandom i was also in Mm -hmm. um so would you say that was the first fandom you joined or do you remember the first fandom that you were a part of? I would say probably because um, that was probably when I was like 11 maybe or 12 and I also I really liked like My Chemical Romance I really liked like kind of emo music and the interesting thing about Tumblr at that point was that there were individual fandoms but there was also this like wider just like fandom yeah. culture of like mm-hmm. if you liked any of those things you were still kind of a part of this community and you like got all the jokes of like I've never seen a single episode of Supernatural but I know (laughs) so many things (laughs) yeah (laughs) I know so many things about that show because you just Mm -hmm. like you ended up I don't know getting it through like a cultural osmosis or something yeah I was also a Tumblr Tumblr girly um I think it was the first platform that really kind of informed the way I think about the world my first real platform was probably MySpace which I loved I also was a pop punk girl so I had my chemical romance as my MySpace profile song for a (laughs) while specifically I'm not okay because I was a ridiculous child um yeah as we know you listened to it and you were like this is so true I'm 13 You're like, I'm not okay. Thank you, Gerard Way, for recognizing this for me. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we had kind of similar experiences, first experiences growing up on the internet, which is maybe why I feel like in a very parasocial way, like a kinship (laughs) with the things that you write about. Yeah, I feel like definitely. I mean, I just think in general, being on Tumblr when you're like 13 kind of gives everybody like a specific brain worm that you can. Yes kind of identify I think (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it really comes through I think in the way that you think about the world because you encounter such strong feeling but also this kind of regurgitated analysis analytical language that was just like the norm but not everyone necessarily knew what they were doing when they were wielding these words (laughs) yeah oh my god definitely I mean I think that I'm really grateful for like tumblr and stuff because I definitely I mean, it got me just, like, interested in feminism at, like, Mm -hmm. such a young age. And, like, I can't think of any other place where I would have been, like, introduced to the kinds of ideas that... I mean, when I was in the ninth grade, I really, like, watched the culture shift. Like, when I started high school in ninth grade, it was really not cool to be a feminist. It was still one of those things where, like, nobody called themselves a feminist. Guys made fun of me for being a feminist. Like, everybody Mm -hmm. thought it was 
crazy, even other women. And then by the time I was like in the 12th grade, it was just like the coolest thing. Like everybody was wearing like the shirts that said feminist. And it was really interesting to watch that culture shift. Tumblr was really ahead of its time, like in a lot of ways. You also saw like the craziest fucking opinions and like Mm -hmm. the craziest people in the entire world. Yes. (laughs) So I think, well, I think it was good because I think it also... There was definitely a little while where I think everybody was a little bit insane because it was hard to tell what was right and what was wrong. But I think for me, it also gave me an ability to be like a critical thinker in the long run and to like recognize that not everything that everybody's saying on the internet and social justice language is like a good thing, you know? That kind of perfectly segues into my next question, which is that you're someone who has a large following on multiple platforms, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram, and we're talking about Tumblr. And I'm wondering if you feel like you have like a spiritual internet home, like a platform that feels more like a community than a following? I would say honestly not really. I do really love Substack, which is where I write my essays now. I really love Substack. It's kind of changing now, which I have mixed feelings about. Like they're definitely trying to make it into more of a social media platform, but I've always really appreciated the fact that it wasn't really a social media platform and that it was just kind of a place where you could write and share it with people and read it. And I really appreciated how it like wasn't super algorithmically focused or whatever. I definitely have had really good times like on TikTok. I've met some of my best friends on TikTok. I've met some of my best friends on Twitter. I really like posting on Instagram. I think I follow so many people who are so funny on Instagram. I definitely have good times on all of these platforms, but I think I am so critical of the way that social media operates and I'm really cognizant of the fact that like none of these platforms are actually developed like with our best interests in mind. I think it's hard for me to think of any of them as like being my home. I think I often feel like I'm kind of battling with them a lot of the time, honestly. So kind of take me through what a day on the internet looks like for you, what this kind of battle looks like on a daily basis. <laughs> I think I struggle because I still like am somebody who has a lot of kind of anxiety and kind of moral anxiety about like what's right and, and what's wrong and what are like good impulses to indulge and what are like bad impulses to indulge. And something that I am really critical of on the internet is that I, I think there are incentives in place that encourage people to kind of indulge really unhealthy impulses and really unhealthy ways of like relating to other people. So, I mean, usually I would say I spend the most time on Twitter of anything. I've been posting a lot less on TikTok because I've really come to dislike it. And the other thing I think that I really appreciate about Substack is that I own all my content, like everything I create, I own it and I own my email list. And I have become really critical uh, and really kind of hesitant towards putting so much of my energy into something like TikTok that is so out of my control and is so like not owned by me. Like they, they take down your videos at any time. The whole app could shut down at any time. I've started really wanting to put my energy into things that I own and that can be like more of a long-term real sort of artistic endeavor for me rather than just like really quick stuff on social media. But I like mm-hmm. to tweet. Also, usually every day on the internet, I name search, which is a really bad habit. Oh. But that's definitely a big part of my social media routine. <laughs> that's brave. It's horrible. It's, <laughs> it's literally like the most. Do you ever name search or do you ever name search about the podcast? Oh, undoubtedly. I name search. I search my handle. I occasionally, though I've stopped doing this 
as often look at the Apple podcast reviews for the show, which can be devastating. It's made me interested in this concept that I can't remember where I read this, but someone came up with the idea of like digital self-harm. And that's what a lot of name searching feels like to me, where it's this almost compulsive desire to just know what people are saying about you, even as you know that it's going to hurt you probably. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, name searching, it's like the activity where I most like palpably feel like I'm like the old person at the slot machine, like just like pulling it again and again yeah. and again. And you know that you're going to see something. I mean, most most of the time, like if you're doing it a lot or whatever, nothing new will come up. So like there's no dopamine hit. But then like the one time that it does, it like spikes, like it's exactly like a slot machine. And something that I think is interesting is that at least for me, I feel like the adrenaline spike is the same whether it's good or bad sometimes it's even like a more intense kind of it's almost stronger when it's bad when it's bad yeah and so it's weird to think that that also is is a reward you know like we also mm-hmm. kind of are seeking that which i think is what makes it yeah like self-harm like you can get addicted to seeing mm-hmm. these really cruel things about yourself it definitely is like totally a compulsion for me i think something that i really really admire about the way that you approach the internet is that it's both critical and compassionate both to yourself and to the rest of like I mean your subscribers and the people who are following you and just people who are on the internet um and I guess I'm wondering you know how do you go about kind of like balancing the critical part like actually engaging with these things is serious and the compassionate part which I think is missing from a lot of internet criticism i think that part of my perspective is like as somebody who has like a ton of experience with like being dehumanized on the internet like Mm -hmm. i just have been seeing so directly for like so many years like how people are not engaging with me as a person and i think that it's so easy to like you know view other people as objects like the internet is an inherently objectifying force like when you commodify yourself on the internet you are like becoming something to be consumed by other people so like the mechanism is inherently dehumanizing it's like almost impossible to engage with each other like as full humans on the internet because of the way that it's built i feel like i am just have been able to tell for so long like when people are engaging with me or engaging with the videos that I would make on TikTok, like it was so obvious all the time that like they just like did not see me as a person in any capacity and had like no interest in my interiority or in any of those things. And I feel like that in particular has like made me really interested in trying to see the humanity, like even in things that I am critical of, or I think that that's like kind of the only way to have like really good criticism a lot of the time like I usually write from things that I like personally experience I usually write about like internet subcultures or communities or behaviors that I have participated in or or that I know I think that especially there's like a big uh, an illustrious history on the internet of people writing really horribly about the things that young women participate in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely take it really seriously that I write about the things that young women participate in. And I often write, write critically about like communities of women on the internet. And definitely like sometimes I have gotten, people have accused me of being misogynistic because I write analysis about the behaviors of women and stuff. My view on it is that like, you know, I, I criticize 
these subcultures and I criticize the things that young women do on the internet because I think that the things that young women do are important and I think that they are like um kind of immeasurably important and immeasurably impactful um to like the larger ecosystem and the larger mechanisms of the internet and I think that it would be disrespectful to not give them like a full and thorough analysis and a thorough criticism. I think the things that young women do online are so important and so interesting. And I think they deserve to be really thoroughly unpacked. Yeah, I think there's this kind of mode when it comes to the things that young women are interested in, that the only way to engage is either disrespectfully or kind of just unabashed love and that Mm -hmm. there's no middle ground and that the unabashed love is the only feminist way to really exist. Um, And so I really, really admire the fact that you managed to stake this middle ground um, in this like really sharp way, uh, which makes me want to ask, do you have a kind of thought process behind creating like your internet persona, like your internet, your Substack is called internet princess. Your TikTok handle is Rain Corp, which you told Vanity Fair is like a kind of direct satirization of the ways that TikTok encourages us to basically become walking advertising space. And so I'm curious as to how you think about like engaging in, but also like resisting that brandification. I think I'm always interested in sort of like winking at the camera a little bit. Like I, mm. the thing with like my handle being Rain Corp and my Instagram is Rain Incorporated is like I'm making fun of the fact that like the internet forces us to brand ourselves and that the goal of these social media sites is to turn us into commodities that really rich people can profit off of and mm-hmm. turn our brains into advertising space and stuff like that. Like I, uh, I've been interested in kind of directly satirizing that or kind of winking about it but then there's the knowledge that at the same time like I am a brand like I make money off of my internet presence like I I um recently like got a manager and stuff like that and my um man my I know and my manager was like so we're gonna have to incorporate you as a business and I was like oh my god it's actually rain incorporated um (laughs) it was like a little bit of like an existential crisis moment where you know like that was my handle when I had like 10,000 followers and I was just like posting random shit but you know like the it's it's strange how my success on the internet has kind of unavoidedly like caused me to become further and further embroiled in these mechanisms of like self-branding and self-modification and so it's something that I think about a lot and that I uh try to be really critical of and try to be really careful about um because I really just like have always had kind of an instinctual disgust with turning myself into like just something to be consumed um Mm. so I I do also like try to like walk this interesting line because you know my essays are often very personal I write a lot about like mental illness and my own experiences and stuff like that um and I think something that's interesting is that a lot of the people who read my essays like really feel like they know me which is like you know happens to a lot of people on the internet in a Mm -hmm. lot of different ways it's far from unique to me but I think they feel like they know like a lot about my life but one of my big rules is that there is 
just like so much stuff that I will never ever write about on the internet or like publicize at all. Like for everything that's like public about my life, there's like 90% that I am really set on like never sharing and never publicizing because it's really important to like keep those things to me. I post really rarely, um, like on Substack and stuff. I'm a big believer in like scarcity of output, um, Mm -hmm. which is something that I've written about before. I really um, don't also don't like the idea of like the internet turning people into just like content machines. I think it's also kind of bad for art in general. So how did you come to develop those rules for yourself? And what are those rules beyond there are certain aspects of your life that you're just never going to write about? One of them that is like, um, has always really affected how I post on TikTok is like, um, before I make a video about anything, if it's like a serious topic or something, I always like, I'm going to think about it for two weeks before I post it, Mm. which is good for two reasons, because usually it means that I've really kind of worked out a lot of like the issues and an idea, or I'm really sure of what I feel before I post it. When I'm really confident in what I'm putting out, like I can take a lot of the hate or the criticism or whatever, because I'm like internally confident in what I post. So I just try to make sure that I'm really internally confident. But also I think the good thing about the two week rule is that it means that I am kind of detached a little bit from just like the cycles of discourse or from like the like reactivity of, of the internet, you know? Um, yeah. I try, like I, I want the stuff that I put out to be like a little bit separate than just like the topic of the week or like reacting mm. to the to the thing that we're all reacting to at the same time. Um, and I definitely still do that on Twitter. Like I'm not better than anybody, but, <laughs> um, but I... I know enough to know that I don't know that much, you know? That is a level of, I think, self-awareness <laughs> that a lot of people lack. The take cycle is so interesting to me. The show comes out twice a week. We're constantly battling when to cover something. At what point is it actually too late? If it's ever too late, at one point, are we jumping on something without enough knowledge? And... I love the idea of scarcity of content, even though that is not something I can currently do, but I <laughs> I really, I think it comes through in a lot of your writing. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think I'm really lucky to like have the audience that I do. I feel like I have an audience that is really happy to receive like one 3000 word essay a month or like they're happy to wait and then know that like the essay that I'm going to produce is going to be like 4000 words and is going to be like a really over considered like take on whatever thing I'm interested in writing about. I mean, I feel really lucky that there's a group of people that are willing to pay for that because I know definitely the mode of a lot of the internet is like two essays a week or like a, a video every Sunday and that kind of thing. And yeah, it is really incredible that you have found an audience that is so willing to wait for the work that you're doing. And speaking of the work that you're doing, I'm really interested to find out what the future is of Internet Princess. So we'll be diving into that after a short break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, 
but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, y'all. Hope you're enjoying today's show and my enthusiasm for our subject that you can hear because my hands are constantly moving. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, that's what ICYMI stands for. I recently found out that some of y'all don't know that. So there you go. Also, our show comes out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays. You are currently listening to the Saturday episode. Our Wednesday episode featured tech writer Alex Kantrowitz, and we were talking about the future of paid verification models on social media and whether or not we are exiting the free trial period of social media. You definitely don't want to miss it. I'm honestly such a huge Rain Fisher Kwan fan. I think she's absolutely brilliant. So you're 21. You have achieved, like, an incredible and well-deserved amount of success. And I'm going to ask you a question that I hated getting when I was 21, which is where do you see yourself in five years? Like, where do you see Internet Princess in five years? It's a really good question. The big thing that I am working on right now is my book. It's really exciting. So I'm hoping in, you know, two years or so, I'll have a collection of essays out. Um, A lot of them are going to be like, expanded from stuff that I've published on my Substack, And then there's also going to be some original ones. And that's really exciting because um, writing a book has definitely always been like a genuinely lifelong dream of mine. Um, What else? I'm really hoping to get into like television writing at some point or like just screenwriting in general, um, which I've already started to dip my toe into a little bit. Like that's why I got my manager. Um, I was really lucky that some people from like the screenwriting world have reached out to me already. So yeah, I mean, I feel like I just have, I'm so lucky to have like so many crazy opportunities that I never, especially like as somebody, like I was only in university for four months and Mm -hmm. I dropped out under really difficult circumstances and circumstances that like I didn't think were, I would ever really like recover from like personally or like financially and stuff like I definitely did not see my life going in a positive direction so um it's pretty amazing to think about the opportunities that I have now and I really want to make sure that I like don't waste them but like I think in 10 years I want to be like living on a farm or something (laughs) um I'm gonna come visit you on that farm you are always welcome yeah I want to have chickens (laughs) I want to have a goat yeah I I I don't think I can be on the internet forever that is so fair I often think about the longevity of a career on the internet as someone who has a career on the internet is just how (laughs) long can you actually do this without kind of irreparably breaking your brain Um, yeah and you see it happen too you see it happening exactly yes yes yeah I like you and it's crazy to see like so many like famous authors so many like well-respected titans of their field or whatever like and it's crazy to just like be able to watch someone kind of descend into madness on the internet and it's always like one tweet like one ill-advised tweet Mm -hmm. that they just double down on for 10 years until it becomes like their entire life and I never want that to happen to me yeah same (laughs) if I ever see it happening I'll just be like hey girly (laughs) yeah yeah um so I want to get into some of your essays because again I just find the way you think and write about the internet just like so 
incredible. Um, Thank and you. So- you wrote this essay on micro-individuality and you actually read a bit of it on TikTok. So we're going to play a little bit of that clip right now. On TikTok, everybody is an it girl or a sad girl or a girl's girl or a vanilla girl. And they're all buying the same Laneige lip masks and tastefully oversized sweaters. Everyone's smoking cigarettes, but in an old money way, not in a white trash way, God forbid. They proclaim their love for Marvel movies and romance novels to prove that they're different from film bros and literary elitists who clearly were just trying to seem different from them in the first place anyway. They're a stay-at-home girlfriend, but in a feminist way, or maybe in a trad way, but also in a way that's just true and honest and real. But most importantly, and we can't stress this enough, they are not doing it in the same way as everybody else. This really clarified a lot of the feelings I had about this kind of moment we're in right now, where it seems to be like so many ways to define yourself and to label Mm -hmm. yourself and to categorize yourself. And yet everything feels the same. Everything has this like veneer to it. And the question I have is, you were talking about this book of essays you're writing. There's always something left on the cutting room floor when you're writing criticism. And I'm wondering if there's anything you change about or add to this essay since you published it. Or are you just like, I was right and I said it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, definitely. I feel like the thing that I run into when I'm writing essays is that I always want to be able to, like, write something truly complete, which is, like, kind of impossible, you know, like, unless you're writing, like, a huge book or any of Mm -hmm. those things. Like, um, I was really lucky to be able to do, like, a talk at McGill University in Montreal recently um, where I kind of drew from some of the stuff that I wrote in that essay. And that was really interesting for me because I was able to kind of, like, expand on a lot of the things that I talked about there um, in a way that I think would be just kind of impossible, especially in that sort of... That was, like, a shorter essay that I really was just trying to get out there. Um, Like, something that I think is really, you know that essay in particular was about the ways in which I think like personal branding on the internet mimics the way that like objects are branded under capitalism to be sold in a marketplace. Um, And something that I think that I wish I could have spelled out more clearly in that essay was that, you know, like obviously all the examples that you listed there, most of the examples there were about like women's commodification. Um, And this was again, like one of those things where like a couple people were like, Hey, like it's sexist that you only talked about women. Um, but the thing that I, I wish, or I hope that I can eventually really spell out, and this I think will be like a fundamental thesis of, of the book that I'm writing, is that like, there is a reason why a lot of these kind of cultural movements are dominated by women on the internet. There's a reason why women thrive on the internet. And that's because like the woman in real life is like a commodified and objectified like social object so like women have always thrived on the internet like the influencer space is one of the only spaces that is massively dominated by women and that's because like i think that the condition of the internet in which everybody is like branding themselves to be consumed everybody is sort of constantly you know or at least these social media platforms want you to be constantly like sort of tweaking and perfecting your persona based on the ever-changing needs of an audience like these are all demands that like are universal to womanhood since before the internet like women are used to being commodified and objectified objects like we're used to having to change ourselves based on like uh kind of an unseen external consumer um so i i think that that's like a really that's a big way in which like sort of the capitalist mechanisms of the internet and the patriarchal mechanisms of the internet intersect because like the the woman 
is like a object under the patriarchy, but she's also a unique object under capitalism. And she's kind of the ideal consumer and the ideal thing to be consumed as she has been constructed under these mechanisms. I'm getting really kind of technical, yeah. but <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. And it's just making me think of the people who are kind of exiled from that form of womanhood and that all of the kind of TikTok trends I keep coming back for the past year to the clean girl trend. Cause I really yeah. feel like it summed up a lot of things for me Yeah, and how black women or women of color had to either specify, this is how you do the clean girl look on a black woman, or we're just like, a slick back bun and hoops has existed for a really long time. And it's kind of weird that this is now this thing that I can't do. Like when I do it, it's not this clean girl look, it's something else that's not recognized. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think that it's the thing that's so interesting when you're watching like how these identities are like kind of commodified and adopted on the internet is like seeing who is left out of that that equation and you know like it is an oppressive thing to have to sell yourself like it it is an an oppressive thing to um to be constantly trying to fit yourself into these boxes but that also under patriarchy is something that can give you like certain comforts or certain advantages and it's a different kind of oppression to be excluded from even being able to fit yourself into those boxes um yeah so I think it's really interesting to watch those these mechanisms of like beauty and stuff be replicated and like exacerbated on the internet. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I have a kind of, I guess, <laughs> aesthetic question, which is that your Substack is written entirely in lowercase, which is a writing style that I also take on online and I don't really have a reason for it. And I'm wondering if you have a reason for it. Honestly, like my first essay, I like Substack just doesn't have auto capitalization. That's the, 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 <laughs> the, the truth reason. of it is yeah. that Substack does does not when you're writing in the thing it doesn't auto capitalize. Um, so, but I also think that I continued to do it because I, uh, you know, that is the way that I've always written on the internet. That is kind of like yeah. a a style choice that comes from Tumblr and Twitter and mm-hmm. all of those things. I think it was kind of this interesting like metaphor for me I guess or just something I enjoyed doing where I enjoyed feeling like I was like you know writing an essay the same way that I would like write a post or like have uh have a dialogue with like other people on the internet I feel like it kind of like puts me on the same level as the people who are reading my essays and it makes it feel more like we're all like talking to each other rather than I'm talking to them do you think you'll write your book in lowercase Probably not. <laughs> <Just because laughs> I've thought about it, but I think I feel like it's not. I don't know. Maybe it's not worth it. Also, Google Docs does have auto capitalization, so it would be more of a hassle. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like it's it definitely does alienate like a lot of people. Like some people really don't like it, and I, I don't care enough to draw that line in the sand. My last question is: If you were to institute one rule that everyone on the internet had to follow, what would it be? I feel like the obvious one is like you have to. Like, okay, going outside isn't enough. Like, I feel like, um, (laughs) I I feel like if there was a rule where, like, every person was given, like, a, a good community, like, a solid group of real friends, and then they had to get off the internet for, like, five hours a day and hang out with those people, I think that would probably do immeasurable good in a lot of ways. 
All right, that is the show. If you want to check out more of Rain's work, which I really cannot encourage highly enough, subscribe to her Substack. Her most recent essay on the ways that wellness language, like protecting your peace, ends up glamorizing and moralizing a life spent alone is honestly an absolute barn burner. But that is it for ICYMI. I'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode, to never miss an internet diary. If you have any recommendations for people we should have on for internet diaries, shoot them on over to us. Please leave a rating and review in Appware Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions and suggestions for internet diarists. And you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI ICYMI at Slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley Ricks and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. See you online or on Nursing Pinterest.